my church growing up had this life-size Jesus. He hung right out in the lobby so I'd see him every week. As a kid, I was in awe of that statue. I'd, I'd fall back a few steps from my parents so I could really check him out. He seemed huge back then, like, like Superman, only softer. He had his, his hands held out like he wanted a hug. He had long hair, serious eyes. This is what God looks like, I'd think. I never really paid attention in church. I couldn't remember the prayers, but I would talk to that Jesus, and I'd ask him for things like good grades or a bike at Christmas, friends to sit with at lunch, and sometimes my wishes came true. And when they did, I was sure to thank him the next Sunday. I didn't want to mess up our connection, you know. But other times they didn't, and I'd, I'd keep my distance for a while. Like I was, I was hurt, you know, like someone had let me down. And I got older, and I wanted bigger things, or better answers anyways, because life got a lot more complicated than wishes and presents. And I tried, honestly, I did, but there seemed to be a lot more silence on his end. He didn't seem so life-sized after all. The softness seemed silly, the eyes vacant. You know, was, he, was he offering a hug or shrugging his shoulders? Because he didn't know any better than I did. And one day, I was angry about something, about my parents arguing, or a boyfriend's rejection, or I don't know, a hundred little things all at once. And it hit me. I was talking to a statue. I mean, yes, I knew it was a statue all along, but I've held on to this idea that it meant something more. That the, the artist who, who'd carved those eyes had seen them before himself. And now, now I wondered if this Jesus was made in a factory in China or somewhere. By the time I was 20, I was done with church. I mean, like I said, I'd never really clicked in the place itself. So when I said my goodbyes to Jesus, to, to that statue, I mean, I had no other reason to hang around. I still go at the holidays to keep my parents happy. And the church hasn't changed. The statue is still there. And sometimes when I walk by, I feel like I can see myself as a little girl standing at his feet, waiting for something to happen. And sometimes I challenge him. Prove me wrong, I say. Is anyone there? Are you listening? I'm sure we've all come to moments in life 
when our childhood faith just didn't cut it anymore. When the Jesus we thought we knew from Sunday school and statues just didn't seem near enough or real enough or strong enough for the realities of life. It happened to me back in college. I've told you the story before. Sitting in chapel one day, we heard about a flash flood in rural Georgia that had wiped out a small Christian college. Much of the campus had been destroyed. Several students and faculty members had lost their lives. And I felt like I had just been kicked in the stomach. Where were you, God? And why didn't you do something? If we couldn't count on God to protect a Christian college for crying out loud, how could we count on Him to protect us from anything? That experience led to many, many months of uncomfortable conversations with roommates and professors and even me and God himself. And I'm sure you've had moments like that too when your childhood faith was put to the test. Maybe you've contemplated walking away from the Jesus you thought you knew. Maybe you have walked away. Or maybe just put some distance between you and him. Or maybe just lowered your expectations a bit. I mean, any number of things can trigger a crisis of faith. A tragedy somewhere in the world. A season of suffering in our own lives or someone else's. Or maybe just a conspicuous absence of him in some time in life that we really need him. And so in moments like that, we ask hard questions about God. Is He real? Does He care? Can He do anything about the pain and suffering in this world? And if He can, why doesn't He? Well, today we're going to meet a man who asked these very same questions. His disappointment, his struggle with God is so real and raw, it gets uncomfortable at points, bordering even on blasphemy. And yet in this struggle, he makes a discovery that changes everything, not just for him, but for those of us who follow in his footsteps. This fall, we are looking for traces of Jesus in the pages of the Old Testament, most of which was written hundreds, thousands of years before Jesus ever appeared on the earth. In fact, this story we're looking at today, many scholars consider it to be one of the oldest stories, not just in the Bible, but in all of human literature. It's the story of a man named Job, and his story is found in the book that bears his name. So we're going to take kind of a bird's eye view of all 42 chapters of the book of Job, but we'll drop in for a little while to look at one particular passage in particular, one of the most inspiring and promising passages in the whole Old Testament. So let's go to the opening chapters of the book of Job and just set the scene for a little bit of what we're about to learn. I'll be reading Job chapter 1, the first few verses. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. There are some interesting things about this story. No one really knows where the land of Uz was. Sounds like a Dr. Seuss book. Uz was, right? 
No one knows. It wasn't somewhere over the rainbow. But it was on the other side of the River Jordan, to the east. But where exactly, we don't know. And no one really knows when this story took place. There are no, there are no mile markers. There are no time stamps anywhere in the story. There's no mention of Israel or the temple or the law or any of the kings. And so it very well could have taken place before recorded history or during the time of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or maybe during the period of the judges, or maybe even during the time of one of the kings. The truth is no one really knows when this story took place, and there's something wonderful about that because it suggests that this is a story for all time and for all people and for all places. The things that happened to Job happened to us to some degree or another. The questions that Job asks are the questions we all ask, especially in times of suffering. What we do know about Job is that he was wealthy, he was powerful, and he was good. Not just good in the ordinary sense of the word, he was really a righteous man through and through. God says about Job, there was not another person like him on the face of the earth. Now, that doesn't mean he was perfect. Job himself is going to acknowledge his failures. But he truly was a good and God-fearing man through and through. And that's why it came as such a surprise to Job and to everybody else when bad things began to happen to him. Verse 13. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabaeans attacked and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who escaped to tell you. Now this is an awful thing. Not only the theft of valuable assets, but the killing of innocent people. But that was just the first report. Moments later, another messenger comes and reports that fire came and killed all the sheep and all the shepherds. And then a third messenger comes and reports a Chaldean raiding, raiding party that came in and stole all the camels and all the donkeys and killed all of their caretakers as well. In, in a matter of, of moments, Job has lost almost all of his possessions. But that's just the beginning. He hasn't even had a chance to process these losses when another messenger comes and says, your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them, and they are dead. Now, what could possibly be worse than losing all of your children in one tragic accident? And yet Job, this righteous man, refuses to give up on God. When he gets this awful news, he tears his robe, he shaves his head, he falls to his knees, and he makes one of the most remarkable declarations of faith in all of the Bible. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Now we sing these words in one of our favorite worship songs. He gives and takes away. And it's one thing to sing it in a beautiful sanctuary on a sunny October morning. But imagine singing it having just experienced this kind of loss. Now understand, Job is, is not blaming God for killing his children. He's simply acknowledging that, 
that even though God allows such things to happen in his universe, Job will trust him anyway. And then, to add insult to injury, Job himself is struck with a terrible disease. We're told in chapter 2, he was afflicted with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. In a matter of days, Job has lost just about everything a man could possibly lose. His wealth, his, his possessions, and his children. All he has left, really, is his life and his wife. And she turns out to be less than helpful at this point. She says to him, Are you still holding on to your integrity, to your faith? Curse God and die. Thanks, Han, for the support. <laughs> Appreciate your encouragement. What's going on here? How could so many bad things happen to one person and a good person at that? Are we missing something? It turns out we are. There is something going on, going on behind the scenes. We learn in chapter 1 and 2 that God and Satan are vying for Job's soul. Satan is out to destroy Job's faith by taking from him all of God's earthly blessings. But God believes in Job. How's that for turning the tables? God believes in Job and allows Satan to test Job's faith. Now, we have to be careful not to read too much into this one story. We don't want to uh, build an entire theology around one story. For instance, we're not being taught here that every bad thing that happens is directly caused by Satan. Things are never that simple. Bad things happen in this world for all kinds of reasons, as this story illustrates. Yes, there is a malign spirit at work in the world stirring up trouble. That is true. But there are also sinful people in the world who do foolish and reckless and sometimes awful things to each other. Chaldean raiding parties and terror cells and white-collar criminals and street gangs. So there's a malign spirit at work in the world. There are sinful people. And then, in a fallen world, the forces of nature sometimes run amok. Fire breaks out. The wind blows in from nowhere. A virus spreads. Cancer strikes. There's never a simple explanation for the pain and suffering and evil in the world. And we aren't being taught here that God lets bad things to happen to people just so He can see how they handle it as if we are all draft picks in some cosmic fantasy league. This is the story of one man's journey through the land of Uz, a land of disappointment and suffering and heartache. And for the next 40 chapters, Job is going to wrestle with God over the things that happened to him why they happened, what they mean, and what God expects from him in the midst of all these things. And we get a flavor of the conversation in the opening verses of chapter 3. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. He said, May the day of my birth perish. May it turn to darkness. May God not care about it. May no light shine upon it. Now imagine being so hurt, so hopeless, that you not only wish you were dead, 
Jewish Jew had never been born. This is just the beginning of a conversation that's going to get very raw and very ugly. Now, I hope you have never come to a moment when you felt quite this desperate. But as we said at the beginning, we've all come to moments when it seemed as though our childhood faith just wasn't going to cut it anymore. The God we thought we knew, the God we thought we trusted, has let us down in a big way. There are times when our faith is put to the test, if not by Satan himself, then by the realities of life. Moments when we're tempted, like that young woman talking to the statue, tempted to turn and walk away from a God who has not lived up to our expectations of him. So I was preparing for this message, wanting it to have a, a ring of authenticity to it. I, I reached out to some folks in the Grace Chapel family who have experienced significant loss and heartache over the years and asked that they would share just a little bit of their story. One of them wrote about her daughter, diagnosed with an aggressive brain cancer at the age of six. The mother writes, I remember the day the Jimmy Fund can at the grocery store wasn't for someone else. It was our reality. After many months of grueling treatment and desperate prayer, it seemed as though the little girl was turning the corner. But then the tumor came back, and in just a short period of time, she was gone. And it took a terrible toll on the family. Another couple tells the story of a life-threatening illness that wreaked havoc not only on their lives and health, but, but on their relationship. To the point where the family was nearly torn apart by sickness and sin. The husband writes, when the problems hit, I refused to ask for help and tried to run away, blaming everyone and everything for my troubles. A third man tells a story of sexual addiction that had taken over his life. My whole world came crashing down when I was arrested, he writes. I hurt and betrayed the people closest to me. My wife divorced me and children were estranged from me. I lost everything. Each of these people, like Job of old, found themselves lost in the land of us, a land of disappointment and heartache and loss, a land in which it can be very difficult to hold on to faith, difficult to keep on showing up and talking to a God who seems at times to be no more real than a statue. But to his credit, Job keeps showing up. For some 30 chapters, he has it out with God, back and forth. Now, friends come along to offer comfort and counsel. Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar and Elihu. Unfortunately, they aren't much comfort and their counsel is not very helpful. They can't accept the fact that sometimes bad things happen in the world, even to good people. And so they blame Job. This is your fault, they said. You sinned, and God is punishing you. But I didn't sin, Job says. Yes, you did, they say. Did not, did too. And it goes just about like that for a lot of chapters. Now again, Job is not, is not claiming sinless perfection. He's, he's just a man, but he's doing his very best. And he says to God, whatever my failures might have been, they surely don't warrant this kind of treatment from a God who's supposed to be on my side who's supposed to be kind and merciful and good. 
Well, Job's counselors are doing what we all do in the face of suffering and evil. We look for reasons, for some cause and effect. And we do that because if we can find a reason, if we can explain it, well, then maybe we can control it. If we know the right things to do, then maybe the bad things won't happen to us. Or at least we can count on God to keep them away from us. And so in times of pain and suffering, we look for reasons. God offers us purpose. And there's a difference between reason and purpose. Reason looks backward and obsesses. Why did this happen? Purpose looks forward and believes. What might God do with this? We look for reasons. God offers us purpose. For some months now, I've been working my way through the Essential Jesus, that devotional guide that we've mentioned to you. I think we have more copies in our lobbies today. If you didn't get one yet, it kind of guides you through 100 readings about Jesus. Well, just this past week, one of the readings had me in the Gospel of John, chapter 9, in the story of the man born blind. The disciples asked Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? See, they were doing what we all do. We, we look for reasons. Because if they know why this happened, maybe they can make sure it doesn't happen to them or to their children. But Jesus replies, neither this man nor his parents sinned. But this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. You hear what Jesus is saying? Don't waste time on reasons because it's never that simple. Instead, look for purpose. What might God do with this awful mess of things? Something that will bring Him glory and be good for everyone involved. To put a polite spin on a pithy bumper sticker, stuff happens. <laughs> stuff happens. And the question to ask isn't why, but what? What can God do with this that will bring Him glory and bring us and the world good? Well, as I said, this conversation goes back and forth for a long time. Much of it is not all that helpful. Some of it is downright ugly. But in the middle of this conversation, Job says something that catches us by surprise. And it happens to fall right in the middle of the book. Chapter 19, halfway through, it's practically the central point of the book, as if it's the hinge on which the whole book turns. After venting his frustration at God in no uncertain terms, Job says, Oh, that my words were recorded, that they were written on a scroll. I know that my Redeemer lives, and that in the end, He will stand upon the earth. Now, this is a remarkable statement. In spite of all that has happened to, uh, to Job, in spite of the fact he's got no satisfactory answers to his questions, he still expresses confidence that in the end, God will come through for him. And he uses a vivid and powerful word to describe God here, Redeemer. And that word Redeemer technically simply means uh, someone who restores, one who puts things back together. But in the Old Testament, that word redeemer has a, has a more personal and kind of a specialized meaning. 
A redeemer usually describes a relative, a next of kin, who in a time of crisis steps into the situation to preserve a family's property or rights or reputation. We read the story of Ruth in the Old Testament. Ruth is a young woman who loses her husband, finds herself living alone in a foreign land, having to fend for herself. But a good man named Boaz sees Ruth's plight. And he not only allows her to glean from his fields, he takes her and makes her his wife. So a redeemer in the, in the Old Testament is a powerful, personal kind of a word. It doesn't describe merely a powerful person, but a gracious person who sees our need, enters in, comes alongside, and works, does whatever is necessary to put things back together. Now, to help us grasp this concept, let's think about it in a very different context. I mean very different context. I know everyone's got football on their mind today. <laughs> Patriots are playing the hated Colts tonight. So let's just work with that, okay? Let's say it's late in the first half of tonight's game. Brady drops back and he throws a pass to Brandon LaFell, who catches it and begins heading downfield. But he gets kind of careless with the ball, so a Colts defender comes, punches the ball loose, picks it up, and takes it all the way into the end zone for a go-ahead touchdown. Well, as the team heads into the locker room at halftime, no one is talking to LaFell. Okay, the fans are mumbling and grumbling. Coach Belichick is scowling, and LaFell feels like a goat. The second half begins, and it's back and forth the whole way, but when they get down to about a minute to go, the Patriots are still down by three points. But they have the ball, and they're moving downfield. As the final seconds wind down, and they come together for what may be in the huddle for the last play of the game, Brady looks around the huddle, and everyone is thinking, throw it to Edelman, throw it to Edelman. But he calls LaFell's number. He sends them on a go route deep as the primary receiver. He takes the ball. He drop, Brady drops back. He can see the linebacker bearing down on him. But he's got to wait for his receiver to get open. So he hangs in the pocket knowing he's going to get hit. Waiting until finally LaFell gets one step on his defender. At the last minute, just as he's hit, Brady heaves the ball downfield. He absorbs the crushing blow and gets driven to the turf. The ball arcs across the field. <laughs> It drops like a feather into LaFell's hand. He catches it in stride, takes it to the house for the game-winning touchdown. The place goes nuts. The place goes nuts. His teammates, teammates swarm all over him. Coach Belichick is smiling. The fans are high-fiving themselves all over New England. Tom Brady has just redeemed Brandon LaFell. He has restored his confidence. He's put him back in the good graces of his teammates and the fans, and no one is talking about the fumble anymore. Now, if that happens tonight, <laughs> you guys need to double my salary, okay? <laughs> so... I realize that's a bit of a stretch there, but here's why I told that crazy story. For just a moment, I want us to feel the sweetness of that word, Redeemer. It has that kind of emotion to it. Someone who recognizes our plight, 
steps into the fray with us absorbs all the bad stuff happening around us so that we can be set free and have another chance. This is who Job is looking for. He's been looking for a redeemer all the way through this book. And now he says, I know he's out there. I know that my redeemer lives and that he will stand on the last day. Now, Job didn't know it at the time, but he was talking about Jesus. This is one of those traces of Jesus we find in the dusty pages of the Old Testament. Jesus is the one who will recognize us in our need, who will come enter into our suffering, who will take it all upon himself, absorbing all the evil and suffering of this world so that we can be released from it, so that we can be redeemed and restored to a relationship with God. Now, it gets even better in the next few verses. Job says... After my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see Him with my own eyes. I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. Job is confident that at some point, in some way, God will come through for him. If not in this life, then certainly in the life to come. This is one of the strongest affirmations of the afterlife we find anywhere in the Old Testament. And notice, it's not just a vague, spiritual kind of a restoration pie in the sky. It's a physical, personal, material reality. In my flesh, I will see God with my own eyes. This is nothing less than resurrection Job is talking about. Hundreds, maybe thousands of years before Jesus even shows up, Job anticipates a resurrection. Not only Christ's resurrection, but his resurrection at the end of the age to be restored to fellowship with God. In the midst of his pain and suffering and abandonment, Job finds hope and comfort in the promise of a Redeemer. Lost in the land of us, he gets a glimpse of Jesus. Now, if if the book were to end here, that really would be enough. I mean, there's hope here, not just for Job, but for all of us who suffer, all of us who are troubled by pain and evil in the world. There's hope here. The time is coming when our bodies will no longer wear out and get sick. A time is coming when we will be reunited with those we have lost in Christ and will be with them again forever. A time is coming when the righteous will be rewarded and the innocent will be vindicated and the oppressed will be set free. A time is coming when all our questions will be answered and we will behold God and this universe in all of its glory. I mean, that would be enough to keep us going through all the pain and suffering of this world. But it turns out there's more here. God's not done with Job yet or with us. The conversation continues for many, many more chapters. And God lets it go. God is remarkably patient with Job, with us, and with these, with these goofy counselors. He's patient. But at a certain point, even God has had enough. And in chapter 38, God breaks his silence and he speaks out of the storm. Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. He goes on to remind Job who's who in this universe. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. 
Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place? Well, it goes on for quite a while, and by the time it's all done, Job has come to a new understanding of who he is and who God is and how this universe works. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me. But it's this next line that makes all 41 chapters, this whole painful journey makes it all worthwhile. Job says, My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. The God Job thought he knew turns out to be greater, nearer, and better than he ever possibly imagined. He discovers that the faith he was clinging to was an immature faith. Like that young woman clinging to a statue. Like me, my senior year of college. God is so much greater, bigger, stronger, finer than our own imaginations of Him. I thought I knew you, Lord, Job says, but now, now I really know. Now I've met you in, in this land of us, in the crucible of suffering, and I've come to know you like never before. Job thought he was going to have to wait for the life to come to see God, but he turns out to get a glimpse of God right now in this life. And if you talk to any believers who have gone through suffering in this life and hung in there with God, they will tell you this is how it works. One commentator puts it this way. Of all human beings, the innocent sufferer stands nearest to Christ. Now again, if, if, if the book ended here, this would, this would be enough. But, but God's not done yet. Having come to this new understanding, Job is now ready for a new chapter in his earthly sojourn. There's an epilogue to this book. You know how you come to the end of a movie, you think the movie's over? And then they start scrolling these stories about what happens to the characters afterwards. Well, that's what happens in these final few verses. In the epilogue, we learn that Job's physical health is restored. He becomes even more prosperous than before. He has seven more sons and three more daughters. I guess he and his wife made up. <laughs> and in the final lines we read, Job lived to 140 years. He saw his children and grandchildren to the fourth generation, and so he died old and full of years. Job got back double of everything he lost, except for his children. You know why? Because those seven and three were waiting for him in heaven, and he would get them all back again someday, as we will. Now remember, this is one man's story. We dare not build an entire theology of pain and suffering around one story. We can't and won't always get back everything we've lost in this life. And we can't and won't be healed of every disease we get in this life. But you talk to any believer who has suffered and stayed, and they will testify to the goodness of God in this life as well as in the life to come. 
And so here in the dusty pages of an ancient story, we find traces of promise. We learn that we can trust God even in times of suffering and loss, knowing that Jesus can and will redeem life's worst moments. Remember the Grace Chapel folks I mentioned earlier, some of the scenarios in which they found themselves. Well, listen to what the woman who lost her daughter writes. Through the treatments and the return of the tumor, I began to lean hard on a God whose compassion for me and my family was realized and felt. I had hope and peace even in those final days. I knew that my daughter was in the arms of her Savior and that she would someday be reunited with us. So because I asked the question, I got an answer. I am loved by a God who does not abandon in times of pain and loss, but instead draws near to our hearts. And now I live to help others know of the power and love of a God who can get anyone through anything. The couple in trouble, the husband writes, when things fell apart, my wife and her faith were there to save me. One morning I got out of bed and went to Grace Chapel on my own, seeking help. The message was strong that day and gave me hope. I kept coming back and was led to Alpha and then to one of the campuses near me. Today, three years later, our journey continues and our life together is stronger than ever. Last May, we both got baptized at Lowell at the same time. Jesus does believe in reclamation projects. And that husband and father who got himself in trouble writes, the day of my arrest was a turning point. God got my attention. I was living in denial. My transformation began when I accepted Christ as my Savior, started reading the Bible and attending Celebrate Recovery. As a result of my transformation, my relationship with my children has been restored. I am now a proud grandfather and recently married a wonderful Christian woman. I'm now in a leadership role and using my wounds to help heal other men in recovery. And as we said, Every story doesn't end that happily. And even happy endings can't erase all the hurts and losses in this life. But each of these people, like Job of old, got a glimpse of God in the land of Uz, a land of heartache and disappointment and grief. They found a redeemer, one who was able to heal and help and make whole again in this life and the life to come. There is a Redeemer. His name is Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for this story. Thank you for preserving it for us all these millennia. We thank you, Lord, for the promise that you will meet us in our times of great need. And many of us have experienced that and we give you thanks for it. Thank you for your good work in the lives of these whose stories we have considered this morning. May you continue to strengthen them and encourage them and many others who have experienced such loss. Lord, for some who are perhaps finding their faith tested these days, wondering if they should stay or walk away, we pray that by your grace, by the encouragement of those around them, that they'll stay and keep asking keep seeking, keep waiting, and that they too will find you to be a God who can be trusted in all the experiences of life. May those of us who have experienced this redemption, may we live full and good lives, 
that point others to their Redeemer as well. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.